Okay, Psalm 58. Psalm 58. And um, I'll be, I'll read the text first of all from the uh, New American Standard. And, um, but can everybody hear? Can't. You scoot up. <laughs> yeah. Bruce, can you hear back there? Uh-huh. Can I sit by you? Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Can everybody hear, though? Okay. And Psalm 58. For the choir director set to Al-Tashaheth, a midcom of David... Do you indeed speak righteousness, O God? Do you judge uprightly, O sons of men? No, in your heart you work unrighteousness. On earth you weigh out the violence of your hands. The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like a deaf ear that stops a deaf cobra that stops up its ear. So it does not hear the voice of charmers or the skillful caster of spells. O God, shatter their teeth in their mouth. Break out the fangs of the young lion, O Lord. Let them flow away like water that runs off. When he aims his arrows, let them be as headless shafts. Let them be as a snail which melts away as it goes along, like the miscarriages of women, a woman who never sees the sun. Before your pots can feel the fire of thorns, he will sweep away with a whirlwind the greening and burning, the green and burning alike. Verse 10. The righteous will rejoice when he sees vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. Now, if you were following that in some other translations, you may have seen that there is a great deal of questions about how some of these things are translated because different versions uh, state things differently and we'll talk more about that as we go along though we will be uh, short on some answers there but again we have just like we did last week that statement in the new American standard al hash Al-Tash-Heth. Now that's, that, ti- that is used in the title of Psalms 58, 57, 58, 59, and 75. Now I do not think I said this last time. But what the New American Standard does, and the King James does as well, is it basically just transliterates that term. It gives the equivalent of the Hebrew letters, the English equivalent of the Hebrew letters. What some versions have is do not destroy. And that is what they believe is a translation 
of that particular phrase. One, a transliteration, where you just give the English equivalents of the Hebrew letters, and the other, a translation. Sometimes versions give transliterations because they're not so sure about that translation. They're not so sure how it ought to be translated. But it is also stated, this may be a song to which this song was sung. It has the term um, mitkum, mitkum, mitkum. Uh, this term is used in Psalm 16 and Psalms 56 through 60 all use that term. Again, we don't know all the details about them, but as we begin the text in verse 1, and we notice a difficulty right away. Do you indeed speak righteousness, O gods, the New American Standard has? Do you judge uprightly, O sons of men? Now, in verse 1, 58 verse 1, the New American Standard has, the New American Standard, the ESV, has, do you judge rightly, O gods? O gods. What do some of your other versions have? I have King James that says, O congregation. Okay, the King James says congregation. Does anyone have the New International? Rulers. Rulers is what it said. Now, why such a difference in this translation? Um, this is a word that's only used twice in the entire Hebrew Old Testament. And so there are real questions as far as what it means. In the versions go the different ancient translations, the uh, Greek translation, the Septuagint, and other translations go different ways with it. But, but there's a question as far as who is being addressed. I think probably the best idea, if you want to get the idea of it, is found that idea rulers. That he's addressing rulers who are in the position of making judgments that affect people's lives and he is criticizing them because their judgment is based upon unrighteousness and wickedness. But one of the things that's interesting about this psalm, this psalm doesn't begin by addressing God as most of the psalms do. It addresses the wicked. The wicked are addressed in verses 1 and 2. Do you indeed speak righteousness, O gods? Do you judge uprightly, O sons of men? Now, you again have a little bit of difficulty in the latter part of that translation. We're looking at the phrase sons of men here in verse 1. Sons of men. You notice in the New American Standard Bible that the sons of men are addressed. Do you judge uprightly, O sons of men? So whoever this first group was that was addressed, it's also addressed here by the title Son of Man in the New American Standard. What does the... Uh, what does some of the other versions do? Like, what, do the chil- what, what does the ESV do here? Children of man. Okay, it says children of man. Yeah, 
children of man. But the big difference I was wanting to notice is here, these are the ones, they are addressed in the New American Standard Bible. I believe that is also true uh, in the King James Version. But in the ESV, they are the object of judgment. They are the ones you are you're judging these sons of men while in the New American Standard they're the ones doing the judging. Okay? Now, all of this may be a lot of details uh, because I don't know that you still get the fact that here people are doing wickedly. And they're making wicked judgments. That's the basis that I want you to understand. And verse 2 makes this abundantly clear. It says, In your heart you work unrighteousness, and on earth you weigh out the violence of your hand. So they don't speak righteousness in verse 1. Instead, they work unrighteousness in verse 2. They work unrighteousness. Now, I was looking up this particular word translated unrighteousness. And it is a word uh, some recently studied Deuteronomy 32. And in Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, God is described as being a, a good judge, a perfect judge, and a judge without injustice. Without injustice. The word translated injustice in Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 is used of God and it says that God doesn't have this. But what God doesn't have in Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, these wicked judges have... In Psalm 52 verse 8, they are judging unrighteously. They are full of injustice. They are full of wickedness and ungodliness. And in earth, on earth, you weigh, you work unrighteous, or excuse me, in your heart, you work unrighteousness. On earth, you weigh out the violence of your hand. Their hearts were involved. Their hands were involved. They were totally premeditated works of evil. And we, we hear stories all the time of things that just shouldn't happen. And people that are obviously innocent, that are convicted, and people that are obviously guilty, that are let go free. We hear stories like that all the time. I shudder to think what it's like in most other nations of the world. It's bad enough here. And I get the feeling in reading this psalm that... David feels like he's been on the receiving end of this wickedness. The receiving end of this injustice. And when he's been on this receiving end, he's going to make a passionate plea for God to bring judgment. As we will see in just a moment. But after he addresses these judges in verses 1 and 2... He's going to describe the wicked in verses 3 through 5. He's going to describe who they are and how they behave. Right now, do you have any question about that? Do you have any ideas about that? 
Okay, let's look at this description of them. In verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. It's almost from the moment that they come out of the womb, that the moment in which they're born, it's almost as if they are speaking lies and going astray from that moment. Now, if we take that too literally, um, a child, when he is first born, isn't speaking anything, lies or truth. But you see, their judge, their, their, their responsibility in verse 1 was to speak righteousness. But instead, what they have done in verse 3 is they have spoken lies. But he gives a very poetic description of the wicked. And they are going in the wrong direction from their earliest moments. And now they're inflicting their pain upon others. I want to ask you what this image of a snake means. In verse 4, they have venom like the venom of a serpent, like a deaf cobra that stops up its ears. So it does not hear the voice of a charmer or a skillful caster of spells. Venom like the venom of a serpent and death like a cobra that stops up its ears. What is that trying to convey about these wicked people, these wicked judges? Right? Okay. Yeah, closed-minded. They won't listen. They won't listen to any plea regardless of how just and how passionate and how pitiful it is. They're like a deaf cobra that stops up its ears. And it does not hear the voice of the charmers. Uh, sometimes you've seen uh, those pictures. I've never witnessed it in real life. The snake charmers who play those little things. The snake gets up and, and, and there are different... Uh, you can read some things about what it is that makes the snakes do what they do. But, but here, the most skillful of charmers will not work. And the snake still bites. Now... I don't think this is necessarily true of a cobra, though a cobra is deadly enough for me. But um, I know one man was telling me uh, a few years ago when we were in the Czech Republic, and uh, we met him. He was an American there that was preaching for uh, another religious group, and we were just talking. He he had a brother or brother-in-law who preached in a portion of Africa where they had some snakes, which if they bit you, you were dead within a couple of minutes. That is pretty deadly to deal with. And to think about someone that's that dangerous, that poisonous, probably nobody here ever got their children or grandchildren a cobra for Christmas. That's just my guess. That because they're dangerous, they're poisonous, and to add on top of it, they don't listen to anything. 
They stop their ears. They don't hear the voice of the charmers or the skillful casters of spells. You remember when Jesus used a parable in Luke 18 and he talked about the judge that did not fear God nor regard man? I think we're seeing a pretty good picture of that right here. A judge that doesn't fear God. They don't have any fear of God. They don't have any respect for their fellow man. And they're the ones in a position to make decisions that affect other people's lives. And so verses 1 and 2 addresses them, shows us some of the wickedness that they did. And verses 3 through 5 give a description of them and all the wickedness involved with them. What else? What thoughts do you have right there? So they're a terror would be another way of of thinking about them. Some have described them as tyrants. Okay. Uh, And and, and someone jokingly uh, in looking at verse 3 said they were early achievers. (laughs) Early achievers in sin, yes. In a bad cause, they were early achievers. But yes, they were early early achievers. But um, I... um, one writer said it this way about the fact they stop up their ears. He, he, they are insensitive to God, to justice, and to the cries of the poor and needy. And I think that's probably a good image of them, um, of, their, of their refusal to listen. But then... And this is the most controversial part of the psalm, but the most remembered part of the psalm that the rest of the psalm deals with asking God to bring judgment upon these wicked. And then, at the end, a statement of the the righteous is rejoicing, how the righteous will rejoice when judgment is brought upon the wicked. But in verses 6 through 9, and in verse, verse 9 in particular is going to differ a lot in your translations because it's just really difficult to know uh, how, how to translate it. Verse 6, most translations are pretty much the same. O God, shatter their teeth and their mouth. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them flow away like water that runs off. When he aims his arrows, let them be as headless shafts. Let them be as a snail which melts away as it goes along, like the miscarriages of a woman which never see the sun. Before your pots can feel the fire of thorns, he will sweep them away with the whirlwind, the green, and the burning alike. God, shatter their teeth in their mouths. I don't know if we have a song for that later. It may be upstairs, but I haven't sung those words too often. Haven't heard someone in the assembly say those words often. Shatter their teeth in their mouth. But a couple of things about this word teeth in 58 verse 6. It was used in our last psalm. 
Psalm 54, 57 verse 4. 57 verse 4. Notice what this t- text says there. My soul is among lions. That image will also come up in this verse. My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire, even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. So, In that verse, he described their teeth as being dangerous weapons. Here, the wicked are described like a serpent, but but there they are described as having teeth that are like spears and like arrows. And just as their teeth have done great damage, he is praying that God break their teeth. Oh God, shatter their teeth in their mouth. And he describes these enemies in verse 6 as being young lions. Now, that is also uh, in Psalm 57 and verse 4. They are like young lions. So, break their teeth in their mouth. They are like lions. And we stated last week that often in the book of Psalms, the wicked are portrayed as being ferocious and vicious lions. So, we have our choice between cobras and lions. It's a bad choice. It's bad when all the choices are bad. But this is a description. This is a picture of what the wicked are like. And here they are like lions, young lions, the most aggressive, the strongest. And he says, God, break their teeth. Now, one of the things I wanted to do, and this will involve erasing some of what I have erasing most all of what I have on the board. But I wanted to show you too, there's a lot more of this that happens in the text than, than we can stop and call attention to. I mean, there's, this is really frequent. And even studying Psalm one by one, you, you don't get a chance to do this with everything. Let's just let this be our line. But I want... I want you to see that actually in a verse in verse six in verse six um, in the Hebrew text there are of um, just a few major ideas and they tie together. First of all, he introduces it by saying, "Oh God." Break, break their teeth. Now, if you call this first line A and call the second line B and the third line C, oh God, break their teeth. Then the next line is introduced in reverse order. Oh God, break their teeth. And in Hebrew, it says the fangs tear out, O Lord. Now you see the structure there. That's what's called a chiasm. The first idea introduced, Oh God, as he's addressed, is the last idea that's taken up in that short section. He begins with, O God, he ends with, Lord. 
In the second line, he calls for violent action. And then talks about uh, break the object of God's breaking is their teeth. And then he, revert, he, he deals with that same subject in the next line, same subject, same ideas, but in a different word order. The last thing mentioned is the first thing mentioned here. The fangs of the young lions tear out, O oh Lord. Does it, I don't know if that would help you at all in seeing the text, but there is great literary artistry in studying the Bible. I know that um, he's like uh, Craig DeHutt was saying that when he was studying college uh, at his uh, school for movie making that they would talk about Shakespeare and, and, and brag on Shakespeare and criticize and say how it's so morally it's so literary superior to the Bible. So it's, it's, a, it's a literary it's a, in a Literary work, as a literary work, it is a superior work. Didn't say that well. And he said that it was very evident that some of them had not read the Bible when they said that. But I want to tell you, there are a lot of people who read this book just in a literary way not having a firm conviction that it's the Word of God as I have and I trust you have. They've read it literary way and they've been pretty impressed by the literary devices used in the Bible and how it says things in a dramatic, memorable way. But right now, let's focus on the message. Break their teeth, O God. Shatter their teeth, break their fangs. He uses some six or seven illustrations in verses six through nine to talk about judgment. Shatter their teeth, break out their fangs. In verse seven, let them be like water that runs off. Water that just kind of runs off and disappears. And then in verse 7, when he, when he aims his arrows, let them be as headless shafts. Remember back in verse 4, we were told that the teeth, or 57 verse 4, that the teeth of the wicked are spears and arrows. They are weapons. They are arrows. And it says when he aims his arrows, let them not have a head on them. It's like as if, you know, in, in the person who is a skilled archer, you know, it amazes me that some of these people are such skilled archers that they can take out a, a deer or another uh, large creature at, at such a long distance. But these people, he's praying, God, may they fire arrows with a rubber stopper on the end, basically, is what they're saying. Is he's asking God, by the way, some like the Septuagint pictures God as shooting arrows at the wicked. That was how they translated that verse. But verse 8, let them be as a snail which melts away as it goes along. Now, does a snail actually melt? But you can, you can, see, the, you can see the trail and we know the imagery. And the imagery is exactly the way we would describe it. It's, it's very uh, dramatic imagery. But it says, let them just kind of melt away as they go 
and let them be like a miscarriage which never sees the sun. Job wondered why he could not be like that in Job 3, around verse 16. Ecclesiastes 6 says, If one did not enjoy life, it would be better to be a miscarriage. But these are all pictures of judgment on the wicked. In verse 9, they are thorns that are being burned in a pot, and may they be set on fire and burn quickly before they even realize what's happening to them. And I'll tell you what we want to talk about in just a moment. In a moment, we're going to look at this in combination with what we're about to study in verses 10 and 11 and ask if we could ever pray such words today. Is it legitimate for us to ever say, Oh God, break their teeth in their mouth and shatter the teeth of the young lion. And by the way, it doesn't seem like these people were just so spiritual that they weren't worried about wickedness on the earth. They were very concerned about wickedness on the earth. They were very concerned about ungodliness. And it's not holiness to not be concerned. Lot was disturbed by the wickedness of Sodom. How could we be less than that? But he says in verse 10 and 11, which may be even more shocking, the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And all men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on the earth. Now I want you to notice something about this vengeance in verse verse 10. The righteous don't take it. The Lord takes the vengeance. The righteous will rejoice. There's a plea to God to shatter their teeth and to break out their fangs in verses 7 through 9. It's a plea to God to take vengeance. And when the righteous will see this vengeance, they will rejoice. The righteous were not taking vengeance. The righteous were witnesses of this vengeance. They were not taking matters into their own hands. But the righteous see it. The righteous sees his vengeance. And it says he will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. Wash his feet. Now that is a pretty striking picture. But the Bible uses this picture of the wine press of God's wrath. The wine press of God's wrath. As God, as a person when they were crushing grapes... They would throw the grapes into a vat and they would crush the grapes and the, the, the juice of the grape would run out into a reservoir. And the person who did this would have, their feet would be stained with grapes, looking maybe as if it were blood. Their garments would be stained with this. God is pictured, this is a picture of God's judgment on the wicked in Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6. 
There's a picture. He throws his enemies into the vat. He crushes them with his feet. Their blood splatters on his garment. It is not just an Old Testament picture. It is a New Testament picture. You remember the, the image in Revelation 14, verses 17 through 20, about the blood flowing to the horse's bridle for a distance of like 200 miles? It's the same kind of thing. The righteous rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And all men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on the earth. Everyone will look and see and say, yes, wickedness doesn't pay. There's a reward for righteousness and there's a penalty for sin. And the prayer is, I think, that people will see this and they will be in awe of the fact there is a God who calls the wicked to account. We all want to think that, don't we? And all the world understands that at point. There's a famous trial. The prosecutors felt there was absolutely no doubt in who was guilty. But the jury comes back with a guilty with a verdict not guilty. And the prosecuting attorney stated that as his trial was over, we were on the same elevator, but there were several other people, but we were on the same elevator riding down to leave the building. And he said, I thought to myself, there's going to be another judge that you will stand for before one day who will not be so easily deceived. We all want to believe that the wicked doesn't get away with his wickedness forever. But if there is no judgment, they do. There is no judgment, they get away with it unless they experience something on earth. Now, I want to make here, um, this is a pretty technical point, but I want to make this really simply, and if I don't state this simply enough, then feel free to stop me. Um, First of all, the term Elohim in the Bible, it has what is generally a plural ending But Elohim is the word for God. It generally has a plural ending. It has a plural ending, but it is always used with singular verbs. When it talks about the true God, Elohim, for created. And verbs in Hebrew are singular or plural. And so, even though God could be plural, it's used with singular verbs, unless it's talking about a false god. It's talking about an idol. They may use 
the term Elohim of many gods, and they may use plural verbs. Okay, everybody's with me right now. Do not speak now or forever hold your peace, as they say. <laughs> Elohim in Psalm 58, 11. The word judges is a plural verb. Here, Elohim is used with a plural verb. Now, what does that mean? That means even people who may not be worshipers of just one God and the one true God, they may see God's judgment on the wicked and they may at least conclude that there's a final reckoning for sin. They, even though they may believe in more than one God. Did I say that clearly? (coughs) If I didn't say that clearly, I'm not getting much kind of positive response. Elohim is the Hebrew word for God. It's the Hebrew word for God. Yes. It is the Hebrew word for God. And that, that, that ending that it has is a, is, is a plural ending. And some said it's a word that fits the, the idea of a trinity well, that God is one, and yet God is more than one. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. But, but here it's used with a plural verb. So, David? Sorry. What I'm getting out of this is the fact that the use of plural verb is usually singular trying to make it, 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 it seems to be it seems to be even people on earth who may not be exclusive worshipers of Israel's God realize there is a God who judges evil there, there's, it, it, this is not the way that generally people who believed in only one God would speak it seems like he's quoting at the end people who, who may just be observing this from the world and coming to this conclusion Does that help any? I may not have expressed that well, and I apologize if I didn't. But, okay. Well, verse 11 does certainly look like that, too. Yeah. Uh, Because there are people who look at the people and come to the church. There is a God. Exactly. Exactly. So when wickedness is punished, that there was during communism and this is this is just amplifying what David said there was during communism in the Czech Republic there was you know systematic teaching of atheism just like there was in Russia you know they taught that in school it's foolish to believe in God but when people gave the reasons for being atheists in the Czech Republic, and the Czech Republic had a higher portion of atheists than any of those European countries we found out. The reason they gave for being atheists wasn't what they were taught in school. But it was the way they suffered during the war. 
these people who died, all this pain, where was God in the midst of that? And some used it as an excuse to reject God. I grant it, there aren't easy answers to those questions. There aren't easy answers. And the, the deeper that we are involved in the pain, the deeper we feel the sting of those arguments. But at the same time, um, the same time, I, I think what David is saying is that, that, that the very same thing, that if there, is, if there is a God, why is there so much evil? But as John Lennox states, and I think I, was it last week I was referring to him, as John Lennox states so well, he reads from a portion of Richard Dawkins' book and said there is no such thing as good and evil. Atheists still got all the evil in the world. They just deny it's evil. And so you can't even call it evil. And, there's a, and so and he, and he points out that, that they're, they're switching their argument. At one point, they're saying we can't believe in God because there's so much evil in the world. And in the next point, they're saying there is no good and evil. Because if there is no absolute God, if there is no one God, an absolute standard of right and wrong, of truth and error, of good and evil, then there is no evil. There is no evil. And, and so, but I, I looked back, I did three radio podcasts on a three podcast on carefully examining the text on Psalm 35. And one of them, I think it's I think it's Psalm 35B, but I put a title on it. Uh, Can we pray for judgment on the wicked? Can we pray for judgment on the wicked? If you want to go back and listen to that, uh, it's absolute if you will listen to it in the next week, it'll be absolutely free for you. It's always free. So, um, but you can you can listen listen to that if you want. But sometimes you read things like this doesn't sound very Christian, and I don't know if we should say this. I don't know if we should wish this. I think sometimes. I, I don't imagine if we've been living in the Czech Republic in, in the 1940s and seen the German army sweep through and kill a lot of people like that, we would feel this is too harsh of language. I just don't think we would say that. I read a story Saturday that was disturbing. I, um, she did not give all the details, and if she had have, I wouldn't give you all, but, but, but this is pretty much what the story said. It was, it was, apparently Saturday was Awareness Day for international sex trafficking, or whatever, which I fear is a lot worse of a problem than we ever imagined. This lady was in Indonesia. She was a banker. A tsunami, I believe it was around the time of the tsunami, she lost her job. There's an advertisement in a paper for a job in Chicago. She talks with the people 
behind this job. She only knows Indonesian at the time. She doesn't speak English, and, and, uh, but the translator helped her and they assured her that she had a good chance of getting this job. She was gonna fly into JFK Airport in New York and the second that she landed, several men said, you know, had her name, they were going to give her a ride. There was no job opening. This was all part of a ploy to lure young women into sex trafficking. They took her to a place, they raped them repeatedly, they beat them. Uh, quite frequently. Uh, they lived in really bad conditions. And after, I think it was a few years, she escaped by breaking a window in a bathroom and getting out. She was on the streets. She does not know anyone, not one soul in the United States and does not speak English. And somehow, she connects with some people who take care of her and get her to the police who help her. There is unspeakable evil in our world. unspeakable evil in our world. And it is not too much to pray, oh God, shatter their teeth in their mouth. Break out the fangs of the young lions. That is not too much to pray. That is not a sign of holiness that you aren't that disturbed about it. No, it's not, it's not a sign of holiness. And we could repeat stories like that. You may have heard of the story which, I mean, doesn't just simply happen to foreigners. A man goes to a San Antonio Spurs game, or Dallas Mavericks game, no, excuse me, it was a Dallas Maverick game. Takes his 15-year-old daughter, is beside her the whole time. She goes to the bathroom, is abducted, they have no clue as to where she is and somehow are able when a person gives them some places to look and say here's some places maybe to look for your daughter they find a picture of her wearing nothing this 15 year old girl on one of these sex trafficking sites but they're able that story at least had a good ending that they are able to rescue her and get her back to her parents but there is unspeakable evil in our world. Oh God, shatter their teeth in their mouth. Shatter their teeth in their mouth. And there is a place for rejoicing when vengeance, God's vengeance is brought upon the wicked. The righteous will rejoice when he sees vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the saints. I've made this point before, but it's worth making again. There are very few, very few Hebrew words that have made their way into English. There are Greek words 
that have made their way into English. For example, what do we talk about when we talk about the sound of this building? We call it what? The acoustics. The Greek word for here is akuo. There's a lot of Greek words made their way into English. Not many Hebrew words have made their way into English. But one Hebrew word that has made its way into English is hallelujah. Hallelujah, which I hope I spelled correctly. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, hallelujah. Okay, yeah, hallelujah. Okay. Takes me a couple of tries, but I know the word a little bit. But, but Hallel means praise. Yah is a shortened form of Yahweh or Jehovah, and it's praise the Lord. That, that word has, as a Hebrew word, it's made its way into English. And there are not very many of them. Amen is another example of that. But do you know this particular Hebrew word is used four times in the New Testament and it is all, every one of those four times is in Revelation 19 verses 1 through 6 and in the reason they are shouting hallelujah is because Rome has fallen or, or, or the great harlot has fallen some interpret that as Jerusalem but the point is the point is that they are shouting hallelujah at judgment to fall on the wicked And yes, so we can teach even little children. I don't mean this to be silly. I mean this seriously. You know, and, 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 and I've heard, I heard people, I heard somebody question a few years ago whether we should sing like that, the gospel chariot about if Satan's in the way, we will run right over him. No, of course we can sing that. Of course we can sing that. And it fits right in line with this. Now, um, what, what thoughts do you have on that before we... David? Uh, the idea of breaking teeth, yeah. especially as it pertains to the cobra, <coughs> the teeth are how they do their damage. Okay. The fangs are hollow, and the poison goes through that when they bite. And so if you break the teeth of a cobra, you take away their ability to do harm. Okay. And to some degree, true of a lion as well. A lion's a little bit stronger yeah. than a cobra. But, but that's With a good point. That, yeah. They're really not harmful or scary. They're not a constrictor that could squeeze you to them. Yeah. And so it's not just like David's pointing out very well. It's not just a prayer for judgment on the wicked it is that and I'm not minimizing that but it's also may they be robbed of the things that they use to destroy people and, and, and again that's understandable again, that's, and it's totally biblical we ought to be outraged by evil we ought to be outraged by wickedness when children are just born and left abandoned in dumpsters we ought to be outraged. And I'm afraid our society is losing that altogether. But 
but this this psalm is, as one writer says, it's eschatological in the sense it proclaims God's reign in the midst of what seems like the power of a wicked world. And that's often the way it is. We proclaim that God is ruling and God is reigning even though it doesn't look like it. Now, we try on, as we study each of these psalms, we try to look, how does this psalm find its fulfillment in Jesus? How does it find its fulfillment in Jesus? What are some things that you thought of on that, in that line? I'll admit this isn't as easy as some. John, you got a thought. Looks like you get a question about your thought. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it, but uh, the only thing that I could see was, you know, this description of, of the evil uh, that's being addressed here in this song seems to parallel the evil done against Jesus. The, the, the okay. evil, those who would not, as 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 uh, was stated, those who wouldn't were closed-minded, would not listen. And, and and pay attention to that which was so obvious. Yes. So when we think, think about unjust judges, when we think about wicked rulers, does Jesus know anything about that? As John was stating, that Jesus knows about that firsthand. I mean, he, he stood before Pilate, he stood before Herod, he stood before Pilate. And even those men, as unjust, as wicked as they were, knew he was innocent. And yet, they're not willing, as powerful as they thought they are, they're so afraid of the crowds that they have to go along with them. They have to do what the crowd want them to do. And so I, I, think that, I think that's a very good point that Jesus experienced horrible miscarriage of justice. Oh, there have been miscarriages of justice before. We think about the case of Naboth and his sons in 1 Kings uh, chapter um, 21 and how Ahab had them killed simply to take their vineyard. There are horrible, evil stories of life like that. But there are none that, that are more so than the story of Christ. He was the greatest example of injustice that the world has ever seen. Because in spite of the fact Naboth was innocent of what he was charged of, he wasn't a perfect person. Jesus was. Jesus was perfect. Jesus went about doing good. Jesus experienced all this kind of injustice. That, that, that. So Jesus wasn't just, Jesus just wasn't a witness to this injustice. He was a victim of this injustice. He was a victim of it. And... Okay, what else? I'm all, this is all really one point. But he was a victim of this injustice. What else? Instead of breaking their teeth, he prays all the people. 
Yes. He does pray for their forgiveness. So this would be a contrast. We're not saying you can't pray these prayers today because I think you can. But, but what it is saying is Jesus' prayer was different. Jesus, in, in a sense, Jesus experienced these curses, didn't he? And Jesus was, in effect, they shattered his teeth and broke out his fangs on the cross. He is absorbing the punishment of the wicked. We have this description of the wicked which Jesus can truly identify with and he has experienced their injustice but now he is absorbing the punishment that was due them that was meant them and while we can and by the way he will come one day and judge all wickedness Revelation 19 is a picture of him riding on the white horse and conquering and to conquer but but I would also say this is this verse as these verses in Psalm 58 speak of Jesus or speak of the righteous washing his feet in the blood of the wicked the righteous are washed in the blood of the way Now, I, I know I've made this point before. Some points are worthy to be made many times, but look at Revelation 6 and 7 just a moment. In Revelation 6, the Bible talked about the opening of the sixth seal in verse 12. And when the sixth seal is open, there is a catastrophic effect in nature. The stars of heaven fell. The, the fig tree cast off its figs. The sky is split apart like a scroll. And all the people are saying to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. But I want you to notice how the chapter ends. Revelation 6 in verse 17. The great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Who is able to stand? It is the day of God's wrath. It is the day of the Lamb's wrath. And who can stand before them? It's interesting that in Revelation 7, you find three times people are pictured as standing. In verse 1, it is the four angels. In verse 11, it is all the angels around the throne. Who can stand the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Well, the angels are standing in Revelation 7.1 and Revelation 7.11. But that doesn't exactly help us, who are not angels. But in Revelation 7 verse 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and people and tongue, standing before the throne of God, 
and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hand and they cry out with a loud voice saying salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Well, in verse 13 one of the elders answered saying to me these who are clothed in white robes who are they and where have they come from? And I said to them, my Lord, you know. And he said, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Who is able to stand before the wrath of God? Those who have had their garments washed in the blood of the Lamb. Outside of that, Who can stand? I can't. You can't. None of us can. But through him, we can. Through his blood. So his blood provides us with forgiveness. Verses 2 and 3 are kind of, or points 2 and 3 are kind of a contrast. But I hope that helps you see. Did anybody have any thoughts of things I left out? You do see uh, the serpent mentioned early in the song being defeated in the end. Good point. Good point. That may make its way on a podcast this week. But um, that's a good point because uh, and it is the same word by the way used for serpent in Genesis 3. Good point. Okay. We appreciate. Um, Yes. Is there a significance in verse uh, 11? Surely there's a God who judges on earth. In other words, the final judgment won't be... That's not the only time that there's going yeah. to be a judgment. Yeah, there's a judgment before the final judgment. And uh, yes, I think that's a good point to make. Um, there are a lot of points of comparison between verse 11 and verses 1 and 2. Because in verse 2... On earth, these judges weighed out the violence of their hands. In verse 11, God judges them on earth. So, so there's a lot of points of comparison between verse 1 and 2 and verse 11, a kind of inclusion. Okay, Boyd, as we close, would you lead us in prayer? And then John will lead us in Psalm, I guess you found the Psalm 58 song. Okay. If you'll leave. God in heaven, we come praising you, recognizing how great you are, and recognize you, you as the judge overall. And we are we are thankful, God, that we can depend on you, that we can know that uh, your judgments are just. And as as we look at our wicked world and express concern over and over again about the wickedness that is being done by the, the people who live on this earth. Uh, we, we know, God, that justice will, be, will come, that you will bring judgment on all the world. Uh, we are thankful to be your children. We're thankful for this song. And uh, uh, we, we pray, God, that uh, uh, we, we might learn lessons uh, about uh, goodness and righteousness and live lives that are lives to others in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.
So this song is to the tune of, as you see at the top, Faith is the Victory. Uh, you know, encamped along the hills of life. Okay, let's look at the uh, let's look at the words together. Some of them are a little bit challenging to kind of fit in a little bit, but they do make a lot of sense as I scanned it quickly. Uh, verse one: You may be gods, he says. You may be gods, but can you claim that you speak righteousness? And do you judge the sons of men in truth and uprightness? No, even in your very heart you wickedness produce. On earth you weigh out with your hands your violent abuse. The wicked from their day of birth are strangers to the way. They from the womb come speaking lies. They wander far astray. They have the venom of a snake. They have an adder's ear which they have closed to the charmers' songs, skilled charmers they'll not hear. O oh God, inside their opened mouths, break off their cruel teeth. The fangs of these young lions, Lord, tear out by roots beneath. Let them run like runoff waters be that leave the ground soon dry. Let arrows that he aims become like headless shafts that fly. Let them be like the snails that melt along the course they run, or like one prematurely born who never sees the sun. They are like blazing thorns which you beneath your kettles lay, whose heat is scarcely felt before a wind sweeps them away. The just rejoices when he sees that vengeance is complete, for in the blood of wicked men he then will wash his feet. They'll say... There surely is reward for righteous ones of worth. There surely is a living God who judges in the earth. That's that pretty good. It was a pretty good commentary too on some of that the, that, that psalm. Okay. Know me so. You may be gods, but can you claim that you speak righteousness? And do you judge the sons of men in truth and uprightness? No, even in your very heart you wickedness produce on earth. You weigh out with your hands your violent abuse. The wicked from the day of birth are strangers to the way. They from the womb come speaking lies. They wander far astray. They have the venom of a snake. They have an adder's ear which they have close to charmer's songs. Skilled charmers they'll not hear. Oh God, inside their opened mouths break off their cruel teeth. The fangs of these young lions, Lord, tear out by roots beneath. Let them like runoff waters be that leave the ground soon dry. Let air grow 
shafts that fly. Let them be like the snails that melt along the course they run, or like one prematurely born who never sees the sun. They are like blazing thorns which you beneath your kettles lay, whose heat is scarcely felt before a wind sweeps them away. The just rejoices when he sees that vengeance is complete. For in the blood of wicked men he then will wash his feet. They'll say there surely is reward for righteous ones of worth. There surely is a living God who judges in the earth.